Well, I'm glad to be standing in front of you this morning. I'm on the tail end of a battle with the flu, so you probably don't want to breathe my air. (laughs) But uh, I know that has been going around. Uh, Yet I didn't want to miss this particular Sunday because this Sunday we begin a new series. We will be for the next couple months in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So if you have your Bible with you there, either in the, the hardback copy or on your phone, I encourage you to turn there. If you are still uh, learning to be familiar with your New Testament, New Testament begins with the four Gospels. Following the four Gospels is Acts, and then Romans. 1 Corinthians is the very next book. Paul writes this letter to a church that was a long time ago, but this letter speaks so clearly now today. And we will be uh, in this the next couple months. I'm going to begin today by reading the first nine verses of the book. I encourage you to follow along with me in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Remember, this is God's Word spoken to the believers in Corinth, spoken to the believers at Central Church. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, any spiritual gift, as you await for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm not going to get into a a deep uh, mining of the facts of of the historical situation there this morning. That'll come week by week, but a few essential things that you just need to know as we launch into this book. First of all, Paul founded the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey, and if you want to read more about that, Look up Acts chapter 18, and you can read the account of him coming to Corinth and how the church was formed there. We read there in Acts chapter 18 that Paul spent about a year and a half there working with the church, teaching them regularly, teaching the Word of God, the text specifically says, among them. At the end of about that year and a half, he moved on in his missionary journey. It took him to Ephesus. He was there for the next two years in Ephesus. And it was during Paul's time in Ephesus that he began to receive reports that there were problems in the Corinthian church, problems in this church that was just a year or a couple of years old at most, and that prompted him to write this letter. So so just get the reality of that for for a moment this morning. Here we have a church that is founded by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, This church sat under apostolic preaching for the foundational period of its its ministry. And yet the reality, now just a couple years into it, 
the reality of their life together can really be summed up with this statement, the church is messy. The church is messy. We're going to see some of this messiness as we go through 1 Corinthians, but let me just give you an overview. The church in Corinth was a mess because of divisions and factions. Next week, we'll look at chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, there are divisions among you. In chapter 11, he speaks about the existence of factions among you. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been part of a church, maybe on a less serious level, whose fellowship was weakened by by cliques, by, by groups that were hard to break into? Have you ever been, on a more serious level, part of a church whose unity was crippled by the polarization of people over issues and to opposing factions. The church was messy in Corinth. It was a mess because people were drawn into personality cults. And I don't mean cults in the religious sense. I mean really what he's describing in chapter 1, verse 11. Again, we'll look at it next week. Some of you are saying, he says, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollo. Some of you are saying, I follow Cephas. Have you ever been part of a church where people gravitated to certain personalities? Maybe it's the personality of a particular pastor or preacher or the personality of another teacher or another leader. Have you ever been part of a church where people actually planned their Sunday morning attendance based upon who was going to be in the pulpit that day? Have you ever been part of a church where if one particular leader, whether it's a preaching pastor or or not, goes off to another church, a group of people follow that particular person? The church was also a mess because of the worldliness of many of its people. We'll see this as we get into chapter 3. Since there is envy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Worldly, in other words, living like ordinary worldly people? Again, let me ask you, have you ever been part of a church where, where people's worldly preferences that they bring in with them and, and insist on and, and fight over cause conflict and strife? The church was a mess because of its toleration of open sexual sin. We'll see this as we get into chapter 5. It is widely reported among you, he writes, that there is sexual immorality among you, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief. Now here's the reality. Every, every church struggles with, with all the varieties of sin, and sexual sin being as prevalent as it is in our culture and such a temptation to our flesh, the reality is, is no church is pure of, of, of struggles with sexual sin, but here he's addressing something that goes even further. These people were actually proud of how tolerant they were. There was open sexual sin going on of a kind that, that was shocking even to the unbelieving people around the church, and they patted themselves on the back and said, we're so tolerant, we're so free-thinking that we would allow this here. Have you ever been part of a church that not only tolerated sexual immorality among its members, but prided itself on its tolerance? The church was a mess because conflict among its members had spilled out into legal action and lawsuits. We'll see this as we get into chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? instead of before the saints? Have you ever been part of a church where 
different believers in dispute with each other, can't work it out within the context of their relationship or with the church, and they go into the law courts and sue and file lawsuits. I've seen that. The church was a mess because of the breakdown of marriages. We we read about that in chapter 7, wives leaving their husbands, husbands leaving their wives. Now, marriages struggle everywhere, including in, in the church. And, and we'd, be, we'd be blind if we said that didn't happen. But have you ever been part of a church that seemed unable or maybe even unwilling to help struggling marriages? The church was also a mess because of people's insistences on their rights, their preferences, their tastes. We, we, we will pick up on this in chapter 8. You must be careful so that your freedom, what you want is your right, your preference, does not cause others with a weaker conscience to struggle. Have you ever been part of a church where, where people cared more about their preferences, about what they wanted, about what they insisted was their right, than about what was best for the church as a whole? The church in Corinth was a mess because of men and women struggling over their roles. We'll see this in chapter 11. However, in the Lord, women, women are, is not independent of man, and man is not independent of women. Have you ever been part of a church where men and women struggled even to value each other? Where they struggled to affirm each other's roles? Sadly, I've seen that too many times. The church was a mess because spiritual gifts were misunderstood and misused. We'll see that getting into chapter 12. And here's kind of the summary statement in chapter 12, verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, of one gifted person, of one particular gift, but of many, but of all the parts of the body, of all the gifts. Have you ever been part of a church where people with certain abilities get all the attention? all the opportunities to serve, all the prominence, and you feel like, really, you're just relegated to being part of the audience, a spectator. The story of the Corinthian church is basically the story of every church. As Chuck Lawless, a pastor that I like to read, says, the fact is that every church is a messy church. I've experienced that. So, so either I'm the one who's infecting every church I've ever been part of with, with mess, or what he's saying is true, and, and really Corinthians is to every church. Why, why is it that every church is messy? Uh, Chuck Lawless offers some reasons that I think are worth going through really quickly. The church is messy, first of all, because we're all sinners, And just because we're saved doesn't mean that that struggle between the flesh and the spirit is done in us. And and oftentimes we feed the flesh more than we feed the spirit, and the flesh wins out and we end up sinning, and often we sin against other people, and that brings that messiness of that into the church. The church is messy because some people are still non-believers, The reality is that not everybody who sits in church on a Sunday morning is saved, knows Christ truly as Savior and Lord. Now, there's good news in that, because that means God is drawing people who need to hear about Jesus and giving them opportunities to respond to the gospel. But here's the reality of it as well. Not only are we all messy, but maybe you can think back to your 
your pre-Christian life like I can. There's a special element of messiness that, that, that exists when we are not yet transformed by Jesus Christ, and that is brought into the church when there are unbelievers in the church. The church is messy because the gospel is intended to reveal messiness. And, and I know if you've been in a religious, legalistic type of, of church atmosphere any time in your past, you, you get the opposite impression that the goal is to come and to present yourself as, as clean, as, as all put together. You, you don't want to reveal any mess. Maybe you even have convinced yourself at one point that there's no mess in you. But the gospel strips away the pride of, of, that, of that exterior. The gospel reveals the messiness of our hearts. That's what the gospel is all about, transforming us as messy people. And so if the gospel is being preached, if the gospel is being spoken to each other, it reveals messiness. The church is messy because all of us are in process. You know, Romans 8.29 reminds us that God is using all of the circumstances of our lives continually to conform us into the image of Christ. You and I, if we are in Christ, we are an ongoing construction project. And, and you've, have you seen a construction site? My, my, my wife is home in Florida in the middle of a construction site. It's messy. It's messy when construction is going on. The church is messy because there is an enemy in our midst. Satan continually schemes to cause interpersonal conflict and disunity. And he's the master messmaker. The church is messy because we're still figuring out how to do discipleship. I've seen this in every church I've ever been part of. If, if there is not an intentional effort to work to grow new Christians, immature Christians, baby Christians into maturity, we are left with the messiness of a spiritually immature congregation. And every congregation has to continually to struggle with how do we do that? How do we help people grow up in Christ? The church is messy because we're not likely to be better than the early church. You know, we, we, we tend to have this ideal picture of the early church. You know, if we could just get back to the first century and be like the early church, everything would be okay. This is the early church. What was going on in Corinth? What was going on in Galatia? The early church was a messy church. Do we think that somehow we, we, we won't be like that? If they're messy, we're likely to be messy too. And then finally, Chuck Lawless says, the church is messy because you and I are there. We could start and end with this one, couldn't we? But here's the reality. I'm, I'm messy. You are messy. Maybe we're good at covering it up, but there is messiness inside of each one of us. And we bring that messiness of our lives, of our struggles of our families, of our backgrounds, of what has happened to us during the week. We bring that messiness with us when we come together as the church. So if the church is so messy, why be part of it? You know, you could be, uh, you could be home watching church on TV this morning. You could be listening to a sermon uh, on the internet, and you wouldn't have to mix with other messy people. Wouldn't do anything about your messiness but you at least wouldn't have to mix with any other messy people. 
Paul, if Paul knew all the ways that the Corinthian church was a mess, and he does, we'll go on and we'll see that starting with verse 10 next week, why didn't he give up on it? Why didn't he write it off and say, well, we'll let it die out and we'll try and start a new one? Here's what I believe Paul would say based on these first nine verses. Yeah, it's a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. There is beauty in the mess, and that's what I think we see in these first nine verses. It is a beautiful mess. The church, the church of Corinth, the church of Central, the church of any church that you've attended that's really a church of Jesus Christ is a beautiful mess. Why? Because of what we are by God's calling. We'll see that. It's a beautiful mess because of what we have by God's grace, and it's a beautiful mess because of what we look forward to by God's faithfulness. Let me, let me briefly go through each of those. First of all, there is beauty in the mess of church because of what we are by God's calling. Think of really who God has made us to be. It, it really is clear right at the beginning of verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. It's not to the church in Corinth that is a church of God. It is not to the church at Central that is a church of God. It is God's church. He's, he's telling the Corinthians, this church does not belong to your leaders. It does not belong to the guy who's in the pulpit. It belongs to God. This church does not belong to the guy who's in the pulpit. It does not belong to the pastoral staff. It does not belong to the elders. It does not belong to any other influential person. It doesn't belong to the biggest givers. It belongs to God. The church of Corinth was not simply the product of, of some human organizational effort. Even that can be said as true about the church of Central. In 1896, this church was birthed, but, but that was not due to the organizational brilliance of its original founders. That was not due to somebody funding it. That was not due to the fact that they had this amazing revival. That was due because God wanted this church. God planted this church. God is the one who lights the lampstand of any particular church. And as long as God keeps that lampstand burning, that church will exist. And if at any point God removes the lampstand, there is no amount of talent, there is no amount of money, there is no person that you can bring in that will keep that light from going out and that church from dying. We would all be wise to remember who this church is really belongs to. Verse 2, he writes to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Who are we in Christ? If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, who are we? What is really the reality of who we are by God's calling? We are sanctified, which is, is of the same form of the verb from which we get holy from. We are set apart we are, we are, to be different, we are, we are set apart to be like God, to be holy. And, and I look at that statement and I think, how could Paul write that to the Corinth knowing what's going on in it? I, I think that is of central. How, how could God say that about us? How could God say that about me? How could God say that about any church with all the messiness that goes on in it? There are really two, two distinctions. There is the, the holiness that is imputed to us, 
That's what I think he's affirming here. There is the holiness that we acquire. Imputed holiness is who God sees you if you have come to Christ as Savior and Lord. He sees not your messiness. He sees not your efforts to be, uh, to be clean and pure and righteous. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you've come under Christ as Savior and Lord, that is the wonderful, beautiful news today that God looks at you in all your messiness and doesn't see the messiness. He sees no stain upon you. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there is also acquired holiness. It's not just that we have that position of God looking at us this way. He calls us to be holy We're not saved by our efforts to be holy, but having been saved, now He wants us as as His Holy Spirit lives in us and empowers us to grow in His likeness, to grow in the likeness of Christ, to be more and more like Him, to be more and more holy. And that's what we're called to be. So there is a hope of greater beauty here. The church is not just what we experience it as today. Our, our individual Christian lives are not just what we experience them to be today. His call is to more fully abide in Christ so that we may increasingly reflect His holiness. And that is, that is a hope of beauty that, that, is, that is there, even in the messiness of church. Verse 2, we are called by God together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Here's more beauty. There is beauty in the truth that one, we're not alone in our messiness. And two, not only that, but we're not alone in the process of sanctification of God making us more and more holy. That God doesn't choose to do that individually. He calls us together with other believers, both in our home congregation and beyond our walls. We have to get over our individualistic mindsets. We, we are brought up in a culture that, you know, that, that really makes you focus on you, that makes me focus on me, that makes us think of ourselves as independent of each other. So whether it's joining a health club to get in shape or, or doing a new diet plan to eat right, we think of that in individual terms. Our, our Christian growth is not like that. He calls us together to grow in holiness. That is part of his design for the church. He doesn't want us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He wants us to live in relationship with other believers, other messy believers. And probably the two greatest instruments that God uses in your and my sanctification process, that process of making us more like Christ, are are trials and relationships with other believers. And often the two are intertwined, aren't they? There is also a beauty in the mess, the messiness of church because, number two, what we have by God's grace. Uh, look at verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes in verse 4, this grace is the grace of God that, that comes through, was given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why I think this is so revolutionary, even though we are so quick to read over this. When, when we think of our messiness, when, when we begin to see our messiness, particularly if, if, if we come from more of a shame-based childhood, which was my childhood, 
We look at our messiness, we become aware of our messiness, and, and we, can, we can despair thinking of our failures to measure up. We can think of all the ways that, that we are incomplete as believers. We can think of how we are not deserving. We can think of all, all, the whole realm of, of shameful thoughts. But God is a God of grace, and, and grace cancels out shame, covers over shame. God's grace is the sum total of all of His saving activity towards us. It's, it's His ways. It's His means. Uh, it is His motive behind how He gives Himself to us fully in Christ Jesus. Grace means we don't deserve it. Grace means we haven't earned it. We can't earn it. We can't ever pay it back. That, those aren't even the, curricula, the, the, the criteria for receiving God's grace. Grace means that God pours out on people who acknowledge their own messiness everything they need to be righteous before Him through Jesus Christ. Grace means that God pours out on messy people everything they need by the power of the Holy Spirit for transformation to happen in their lives. And that's the beauty of it. He, he gives this to messy people. He gives this to messy people in relationships in a messy church. In fact, it is our, I would argue it is our very messiness that helps us to see the need of it. I did not get grace. I did not understand my need for God's grace until I began to see my own messiness. Verse 5. How else or what else do we have by God's grace? Verse 5, through Him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your speech and all of your knowledge. God in His grace not only saves you and me, but He graces us with spiritual gifts. And, and there are other places, other forums within Central Church where you can learn a lot more about spiritual gifts than I can give you in about 30 seconds here. But, but here's my 30-second summary of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, they're, they're not talents. They're not anything natural that I have or you have in us. Uh, they're not uh, any kind of learned abilities or practiced abilities. They're something that we could not have until, we come, uh, until we're saved, until we, we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and He fills us with His Holy Spirit. A spiritual gift is an ability that God gives you by the presence of His Holy Spirit working powerfully within you, and He gives it not for you to serve yourself or me to serve myself, but to accomplish His purposes through His church. Now, there's lists of, of spiritual gifts. Again, that's not the point of, of my, my sermon this morning to go there. We will go there in future chapters. But I, I would highlight there, there are two categories of gifts that are, are laid out here in this verse, the category of gifts of speech and the category of gifts of knowledge. Let me explain those, and then I'll, I'll briefly comment on why they appear here. Gifts of speech refer to just one class of the different kinds of spiritual gifts that, that, that God made grace believers with. Gifts of speech include gifts like teaching, gifts of tongues, gifts of prophecy. Gifts of knowledge are another class of gifts that have to do with the perception of the truth. That would include gifts of revelation, gifts of, of wisdom. Why is it that Paul, of all the different spiritual gifts, why is it that he mentions those here? Is it because those are the most important gifts? No, it's actually just the opposite of that. 
These are the categories of gifts that the Corinthians, in their particular setting, said, if you got these gifts, you're really somebody. If you've got these gifts, then you can serve. That's who we want. Let's find somebody who has the gift of speech and knowledge, and let's put that person up front. And he says, your very source of pride is, you've got to turn that upside down. Even the very gifts that, that you give prominence to, they're not from you. They're not ginned up in you in some way. They are given to you by God. And later, he will actually directly deal with their abuses of these gifts. But right now, he reminds them, and he reminds you and me that Whatever gift there is, it is, verse 6, the gifts that we have are the testimony about Christ that was confirmed among you. In other words, your spiritual gifts confirm. They're one of the ways that confirm that you are genuinely saved, that you have Christ in you. Here's the reality. If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, and He has poured His Holy Spirit into you, and He has given to you at least one spiritual gift— Every believer has at least one, some more spiritual gifts. We don't pick them. We don't take some, you know, we we don't check them off and say, I would like these spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit sovereignly gives them according to His wise purposes. Here's the other reality, that in every group, in every congregation, in every local congregation, we have all the gifts that are actually needed to accomplish the mission that that, that He wants us to accomplish. Why is it that, that then we don't accomplish our mission? Why is it that we don't see that? One, it's because many people don't know their spiritual gifts. Two, it's because we, again, in our messiness, we raise certain gifts to an elevation of prominence above other gifts. And we say, if you have these gifts, you're what we're looking for, you can serve. We're not even looking for the rest of these gifts. But God says through Paul, he enriches the church with the whole collection of gifts. He sees all of those gifts as actually equal before him. And we'll get into that further when we make our way there as we go through the book. Finally, there is beauty in the messiness of the church because of what we look forward to by God's faithfulness. Verse 7, so that you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Churches tend to be the the messiest when they lose their perspective of God's big picture, of why He's given them gifts, of why He's called them together. And we fall into this trap when we look at church as successful based upon whether numbers are increasing and we have lots of money and lots of programming, we're not focusing on gifts. We're not focusing on the power of God or we're focusing on human accomplishments. God has something far greater in mind. God doesn't give His gifts just so that we can be a successful church, however we would define that in our culture. God gives His gifts that we can serve faithfully, looking forward to the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge that Jesus Christ is returning, the knowledge that when He returns, you know, it all comes down to for every human person living, do you recognize Jesus as Savior and Lord? He gives us the gifts now to save as many people as possible so that when He comes, 
those people will, will join in His kingdom. Verse 8, He will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He used that word confirm already in verse 6. I didn't dwell on it there, but here in verse 7, I think it has even more significance. It has the meaning of, of guarantee. And it's really in a, in a future tense here. In other words, God's saving work in us, His saving work in you and me individually, but His saving work in us as a church is not finished yet. He is committed to finishing the work. Philippians 1.6, He began a good work in you. He will bring it to completion. Again, think of that construction site. I think of my wife looking at all the mess, thinking, is this ever going to be done? Is this, is this ever going to be in one whole piece, my home? And don't we feel like that sometimes about our lives? Don't we feel like that certainly sometimes about our church? Is it always going to be messy like this? Is there never going to be any progress that we see? Here's God's promise. It's not based upon whether we bring in the right next senior pastor. It's not based upon whether we do this process that I'm here to do correctly. As important as I believe that is, it is that God is committed. He has confirmed. He has guaranteed that He will bring us to the end, that He will accomplish what He's begun, that He will bring it to completion. I know humanly, both individually about our own spiritual lives and about our church, we can become discouraged. We can lose hope that anything ultimately will change. But Paul directs us, our attention off of those human thoughts, he directs our focus up to who it is who really can affect change. The one in whom our dependence really has to be. If God has called you to salvation in Jesus Christ, He will get you to the finish line. If God has established the church, central church, whatever church you are thinking of in your mind, He will not give up on that church. He will complete what He has set out for that church. Verse 9, we look forward to God's faithfulness, or we look what we look forward to by God's faithfulness. God is faithful, verse 9 says. Our church existence, central church's existence, any church's existence, but let's focus on central today. Central church's existence depends entirely on God's faithfulness. Not on the pastor, not on the elder, not on the influential person, not on the giver, not on the programming, not anything about our individual giftedness. We depend upon God's faithfulness. And by Him, we were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship, I love that word. Uh, you've probably heard the Greek word behind it. Koinonia literally has the, mean, the meaning of common union. What's the essence of that? Uh, again, we've touched on this, but God designed the Christian life not to be lived independently. He designed the Christian life to be lived in common union. Me, a messy person, living in common union with other messy people. That's how God designed the Christian life. And transforming us all by the virtue of the fact that we are in common union with each other. So you and I are called to be part of a, a messy church. A messy church where we share in Christ with other messy people people. And should we decide, I'm, I'm done with church, and 
and, and, and look for another church, stay there long enough, you'll see their mess. Should we decide, I'm, I'm done with church entirely, and, and I'm going to sit home and, and watch church on TV? God's purposes will not be accomplished. This is His plan A. There is no plan B. Until Jesus Christ is revealed at His second coming, the church in this world will always be messy. Why? Because it's a collection of people of all generations, all races, all cultures, all backgrounds. We all bring our baggage, our messy baggage, in from all those different aspects of our lives. And we're all still under construction. We're all still a construction project in process. But never lose sight of the beauty of what God is forming us into. I think we catch a glimpse of this, and I'll close with this in Revelation chapter 7, when the Apostle John is, is, is shown a glimpse of heaven, and he writes, he sees a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all those different backgrounds, all those different perspectives. They are standing before the throne of God. They are standing before the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he hears them from all their different perspectives crying out with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is who we're becoming. And it is a beautiful mess. Let's pray. Father, we long to be part of that that heavenly scene. And I know we're only given a, a, a dim glimpse of it. But we we long for You to draw us beyond our differences, beyond everything that divides us, beyond all the ways that we misunderstand each other, that we hurt each other, that we sin against each other. Lord, that You would draw us together, that we would be that, that multifaceted multitude around the throne singing the praises of how You have saved us, singing the praises of our Savior, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Lord, give us, give us faith, Lord, to see that in the midst of our personal messiness, in the midst of the messiness of our church, you are doing something beautiful. Lord, give us a deeper dependence upon you. We're not waiting for the right person. We're not waiting for the right program, the right, right plan. We're looking to you, Lord. We pray that you would make us your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.